You're in the chat room with Virginia Trioli. And we're inside your body within the chat room today, answering the age-old question, what is wrong with you? What's Wrong With You is the title of this new book written by Dr. Sarah Holper, An Insider's Guide to Your Insides. Because there's so much anxiety that we experience in relation to what we fear might be wrong with us. There are so many of those endless and sometimes ultimately alarming Google searches that are embarked upon every single day trying to answer that question, oh, what is wrong with me? And you usually end up with such an alarming answer that you create a secondary problem that might be wrong with you. That Dr. Sarah Holper thought it was probably time we took an insider's look at the insides. And she joins me in the chat room. Dr. Holper, good to meet you. Good morning. Good morning, Virginia. You're a neurology doctor. Does that mean you're a neurologist? Good question. It takes 12 years to become a neurologist. I mean, you're 11 of 12. (laughs) You're just shy of the formal qualification. Exactly right. 12 years to be a neurologist. Wow. Mm -hmm. That is so much. Lots to learn. Lots to learn. That's a hell of an apprenticeship. So so what do you do during those 11 years once you've finished your, your, your basic medical degree? Yeah, so it's it's five years at, at medical school or maybe six years at medical school and then a year of internship, which is in a hospital sort of as a probation period. Mm-hmm. And then it's three years of general training where you learn everything about the body, every organ in horrific detail. Um, at the end of that, you have two exams that make you question why you ever wanted to do medicine, but then you pass them and you remember why. And then it's three years of specialised training in neurology PhDs, etc. After that, I will never. I don't really complain about my job at all, but I certainly will never complain about the work involved in my job ever again. Oh, it's all fun, though. You're working the whole time. It is like an apprenticeship. I think that's a really good description of it. Yeah, so you sort of forget clear. where you are in the in the pathway. You just keep on going, keep learning. And, and of course, because it's neurology, I mean, it, it really is the never-ending quest, the never-ending journey, because exactly. there's still so much that we don't know about the brain. Exactly right. So why did you decide that you wanted to, to take this internal look? Because there's a, there's umpteen medical books and a, a million self-help books on, you know, how can I fix what's ailing me? What in particular did you want to narrow down onto? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I've learned lots of things working as a doctor, like, you know, how dangerous ladders are or the perils of playing squash without goggles because, believe me, your eyeball can really burst like a, like a grape. But above all, oh. what I've learned is that everyone... <laughs> Stop it. There's an image I'll never get rid of. <laughs> oh, you and me both. What I've learned above all, though, is that everyone is fascinated by their body, how it works, why it goes wrong, and how it goes wrong. But the problem that I realised was that unless you go to medical school, you're never really taught how your body works or how to interpret common medical symptoms. Mm. Like before I went to medical school, I had no idea that I had a spleen, let alone where it was or what it did. And over the years, you know, speaking with patients and answering thousands of questions, I've concluded that what most patients want from their doctor isn't a diagnosis in Latin. It's an explanation in English about what's wrong with them, what's actually going on inside them that's making them feel sick. And... Uh, um, over the years, I thought, oh, God, it would be great if there was a book that kind of just explained anatomy and physiology in an entertaining way that people would want to read that I could just give to my patients if they wanted to know more. Realised there wasn't one, so I, 
I wrote it to explain exactly what's wrong with you. I think that's a lovely description, and you're exactly right. We get a user manual with everything, and I always love sitting down and reading from cover to cover the user manual that might come with, oh, I don't know, the new fridge that you're lucky enough to, to buy. I actually do read that thing. But we, we don't come with a user manual, and um, it is dangerous that, that Dr. Google is sort of stepping in to, to fill that gap. Exactly right, and I think a user's manual is a terrific explanation for, for this book, and I've always found it baffling that patients are really self-conscious about their lack of medical knowledge. Mm. But why on earth should you be expected to know how your body works just because you have one? You know, like I've got a vacuum cleaner. I did read the user's manual, so I know how it works now. But before I read the user's manual, I had no idea how vacuum cleaners work. You know, there may as well be a little wizard in there that starts sucking dust when I turn it on at the wall. I didn't feel embarrassed that I didn't know how it worked. I'd never been taught it. It wasn't until I read the user's manual that I understood. Mm. And um, unfortunately, humans don't really get a user's manual. Um, We're just kind of expected to understand how the body works and Patients, I often see them sort of nodding obediently and pretending to understand medical lingo because you don't want to look stupid or whatever. That's, yeah, I, I don't think that that's really an acceptable way to conduct medicine. No, and what's really interesting about that, Dr. Holper, is that if you go to the doctor to, to try and get a solution to something that ails you, and if the solution is found to be pharmacological, take this tablet, take this treatment, there's really no explanation or understanding of why, of what exactly, of what neural pathway or what part in your body, what active element in that tablet is going to do and what it's going to do to it. For example, it's, it's always bothered me when you get a headache. The solution is, well, you know, take a couple of analgesics and that will fix your headache. Mm. The way my brain works is that I get rather distressed thinking, no, 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 I need to know why the pain is being caused. And what is causing that pain? What is the issue, the pressure point there? And how can I hopefully solve that? I could not agree more. And I think it's really unfair that doctors have this monopoly on body-based knowledge. You know, we spend so many hours learning anatomy and physiology. And by the time that we graduate, we sort of forget that for normal people, that stuff isn't common knowledge. So if I'm taking history from you, Virginia, and you tell me you've got a headache... I ask you questions that rule out lots of really serious things. And if I get to the end and I've excluded those problems in my own mind, I feel confident giving you a prescription for, you know, analgesia or whatever. I know that that works on the trigeminal nerve or whatever that's going to get rid of your headache. But because often doctor consultations are so short, we don't actually sit down and explain, this is, you know, your brain's one and a half kilos and it's the texture of tofu and this is why you feel the pain. That's the really interesting bit. That's the bit that, you know, we love learning at medical school. It's so fascinating to know how your body works. But unfortunately, we don't share that with patients. We just sort of internally come to these conclusions and forget that the thought process we've gone through, the interesting bit, isn't common knowledge to, to patients. What's so, one, what are the, one of the most commonly uh, presented issues that doctors might see about which well, we mere mortals usually have very limited knowledge and understanding? Oh, good question. Um, I think that a very common complaint would be stomach aches. So, for example, Virginia, I'll get you to point to where your stomach is. Got it. Now, I, I can't see, but I suspect that you're pointing somewhere around your belly button. Kind of no, I'm not. Your... I'm, I'm pointing sort of just below my, my rib cage. Just below your rib cage. Whereabouts? Left, right, middle? Uh, middle. Middle. Okay. So, I'll direct you a lot higher. It's just about five centimetres below your left nipple. It's really quite, quite up high. 
Um, so when people have a stomach ache and they complain of pain sort of where you were pointing at the, at the bottom of the rib cage or around the, the belly button, that's really not a stomach ache. It's sort of where your intestines That's intestinal, live. that's right, yes. Exactly right. And sort now of, you're speaking to someone with Crohn's, so I'm, I'm on that one. <laughs> ah, there you go, Crohn's. Fascinating, um, But sort of the location of organs around the body is, is not very common knowledge at all. Like yes. your, your liver's tucked all the way up on the right-hand side as well. So I think that lots of people who have problems like Crohn's, you know, intestinal problems, think that it's a stomach ache and might try and use antacids and things like that to fix it. But just some basic understanding of anatomy, you know, your, your stomach's way up near your left nipple would immediately put that um, hypothesis to rest. That's, that's very true. I, I, I don't think I knew until extremely recently really where my liver was. I could not tell you. I've got no idea where the spleen is. Where is the spleen? <laughs> the spleen's tucked just behind your stomach on the left, so a bit further around um, underneath the ribs as well. Okay. Very pretty organ, bright purple. Bright purple. Oh, that's nice. Um is it necessary? Is it necessary to have a spleen? Uh, no. People can have their spleen taken out. It's very prone to bursting. So if you play rugby... Not spontaneously? Or, well, not spontaneously. <laughs> if you get whacked. So okay. people who play rugby and get whacked in the side, or if you have a motor vehicle accident and fall really heavily onto the left, it can, it can sort of rupture. And so spleens can be taken out. The main problem is that after that, you get prone to having infections because your spleen is quite important for filtering the blood and detecting any um, microbes that might be in there. So if you don't have a spleen, you need to you know, wear a necklace or something that tells people who might find you on the street if you were to be sick to say, I don't have a spleen, keep that in mind. You've got to take antibiotics every day just to prevent infection, but you certainly can live wow. without it. You can live without quite a few of your organs. Actually. Wow, every day though, my goodness. Lots of lovely texts coming in. Dr. Sarah Holper is with you. She's written, What's Wrong With You? An Insider's Guide to Your Insides. I love this text here. Sarah Immortialic. Oh, and she's just updated. Here she is. She's back. Saying, What a great conversation. At 45 years of age, I'm only now starting to understand how much our hormones impact lots of bodily functions and that's frustrating. Mm. That's really interesting to me. I've actually discussed with my producers how one day we need to do an entire segment on hormones and, and I don't just mean, you know, hormone replacement therapy for women. I mean how a doctor really through your entire you can go through your, your whole life seeing doctors or specialists for this or that and no one will ever talk to you about hormones but hormones define virtually everything. Oh, you're completely right and I mean the, the really sort of obvious example of hormones immediately comes to my mind is your circadian rhythm so the the patterns of biological activity that happen in your body every 24 hours or so so the, the one that most people would think of would be your sleep wake cycle and that's controlled by hormones so melatonin and cortisol fluctuate every day peak and trough to make you alert and sleepy at the proper time so melatonin makes you tired at night gives you sleep pressure makes you want to go to sleep and cortisol rises and peaks at about nine o'clock in the morning. And interestingly, if you look at big population data about what time of day people have heart attacks, it tends to be around nine in the morning. And in part, that's because cortisol, as part of waking you up, increases your heart rate, increases your blood pressure, and that physiological strain on your heart can lead to a heart attack. So hormones are certainly, you know, very potent and can affect the way that our body works in significant ways. The, the gut issue that you raised before about where we might point to when we point to our stomach, and I have to read this text to you this morning. Ha, 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 way up near the nipple. She hasn't seen where my nipples are nowadays. 
And, uh, That's brilliant. That's all brilliant. the breastfeeding mums in the audience listening today are all nodding with that going, uh-huh, I hear you, sister. Um, I mean, it... to, to be fair, though, I mean, the stomach is about the size of a fist when it's empty, yes. but it can stretch to four litres. So it can extend all the way down to Hey, the listen, I, I eat Christmas <laughs> lunch just like everybody else. I know that. <laughs> That's why the waistband has to be loosened. Come on, we're, we're living real lives here. Uh, but, but talking about the gut, I mean, that that's a, a new frontier, a really interesting frontier when it comes to a lot of medical research and science uh, where a lot of interesting uh, research and developments and breakthroughs are being made. But it must be an area, you mentioned before, stomach pains, where so many people present to their doctor with what seem to be um, insoluble problems. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that something that's really concerning is that if the doctor can't help you or isn't listening to you or explaining or giving information that seems pertinent to you, that's when people can really resort to Dr. Google. So an example that springs to mind is this patient I had a couple of years ago, a middle-aged mother, and she was catching lots of colds from her kids. And she went to her GP all the time and the GP said, oh, look, you know, just, you know, use tissues. You don't need to take vitamin C or anything. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And she just had had enough of it. And she started Googling ways to boost the immune system. And Dr. Google told her that vitamin B6 was really good for that. So she went to a compounding pharmacy and got these superdose B6 tablets made up. And she was taking, in the end, 20 times the safe intake of B6. Now, B6, you need it for your immune system to work, but you get plenty of it just in, you know, bread and normal food. She was taking the equivalent every day of 70 kilos of pistachios, which is a food that's very high in B6. Mm. Obviously, that's much more than your body needs. Now, the problem with B6, Virginia, is that it doesn't boost your immune system, but it does damage your nerves, and that can be permanent. So when I met this mother, she had come into the emergency department and she had completely lost feeling all the way up to her knees and to her elbows from the you know poisoning of B6 to her nerves, and that was, that was permanent. Wow. So, I mean, you know, the importance of communicating with patients and being part of, you know, if you're going to take a supplement, see your doctor first. Just because you can get it over the counter doesn't mean that it's benign. Just, it, yeah, so many examples. Like that's that. an amazing story. Is it not an example, though, of you know, of little failures, I guess, in the system along the way? That uh, the thing that comes to my mind, Doctor Holper, is the compounding pharmacist just taking a moment to say, "Why are you asking for these? What do you intend to do with them?" And having that informed conversation with her. Oh, clearly there were lots of. We talk about the Swiss cheese model of um, errors in medicine where if the holes line up then terrible things can happen yeah. I mean number one hopefully her GP could have had a conversation about ways to you know washing your hands and ways to reduce cold the second thing the compounding pharmacist should have said hold on why do you want me to prescribe or prepare 500 of these tablets what are you going to do with them and yeah all of these things there are lots of ways along along the journey that could have stopped her having this permanent nerve damage at the root of it all is health literacy and communication, speaking to patients about how the body works, helping people in the community understand how their body works, how your nerves work, and realising that just taking heaps of B6 isn't mm. going to stop you getting cold. Well, look, that's an old saw, I guess, that, that it's been assumed for many years that doctors are trained in the mechanics, in the biology of it all. They're taught to be good technicians but not taught a good bedside matter, manner, as it were, and not taught to be good communicators. But that's really changed with your training, hasn't it, Dr Holper? 
it has massively changed, thank God. Because you're right, historically, you'd, you'd book an appointment with a doctor who would always be a man wearing a top hat, and you'd come in, he'd kind of put you on a sterile table and poke and prod you and not really talk to you, give you a prescription, write something in Latin, you'd take a tablet and hopefully you'd get better. But that sort of paternalistic model is completely changed, thankfully. It takes a long time to filter through. But at medical school, for example, we get these trained actors who come in and they pretend to be patients and you know, they might break down in tears in front of you and you get assessed on how well you can speak to them and understand their needs. And look, I mean, I think that the more that you work as a doctor, the more conversations that you have with patients and their families, well, I've certainly come to realise that that's the best bit of the job, speaking with people, understanding what's wrong with them, how it's affecting their lives. You know, if you've got headaches, it's not just the pain in your head, it's the way that you can't do your job, you can't have a good mood, you can't go out with your mates. That's really important, looking at that holistic view. Some of the subjects that you cover in the book, including uh, nosebleeds and earache, and I'm, I'm so glad that you start with headache. You mentioned mm. a nerve just before, the one that's going to be acted upon by the analgesic that you've clearly asked me to take. What is that nerve and, and why does it make my head ache? Yeah, so I was talking about something called the trigeminal nerve. So we'll have to back up and have a bit of anatomy here. Now, your brain's about the size of two fists. So if you put them together, that's about how big it is, one and a half kilos. And if you, if you were to put a fresh brain on a table, it would kind of just sag and fall apart because it is really quite, quite soft. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to open somebody's skull and poke their brain, they wouldn't feel it. So the brain has no nerves within it. It can't feel pain. What it does is it's like the central processing unit. It receives pain information from all around the body. You know, you step on a bit of Lego or whatever on your foot and your brain interprets that pain in your foot. But the brain itself has no pain receptors. Um, I had a patient who fell into a rose bush and uh, a twig went through his eye into his brain. And he said to me, Sarah, why didn't it hurt when it went into my brain? I didn't even feel it. I had this conversation with him. The brain Hang on, can I just just pause for a second, Dr. Holper? Was Mm. this patient having the conversation with you about why it didn't hurt while the stick was there in his brain? It was 45 days after the stick had been removed. (laughs) Fear not, fear not. Um, but my point is the brain itself can't feel pain. So if you have a headache, it's not coming from the brain itself. The pain is coming from the lining of the brain, which is called the, the dura. Now, the dura get their nerve supply in part from a nerve called the trigeminal nerve, tri meaning three, and gem, I think, meaning seeds. It sort of has three different roots that contribute to it. So when you get a migraine or you get a headache, that nerve is implicated. So if you take analgesia, pain relief, it dampens down those pain signals in that nerve and hopefully take away the headache. Amazing. See, no one's ever explained that to me. They just they just say, here, take you know, take two panadol. And you oh. always look at it and you think, what exactly am I dulling? And, and which part of my brain am I dulling? But there you go. Mm. So is that, does that explain why? I mean, it's always a freaky thing when we see it, when we see people having their brain operated on and they have to be awake and conscious while that happens. That can happen at least in part because they're not, they don't have any nerves there and they're not feeling it. That's exactly right. So... It's not just to save money on general anaesthetic drugs, it's because it's actually useful to have the patient awake. So what usually happens is the patient's anaesthetized, you cut open the skin on the scalp, you use your drill and you drill into the, the, um, through the skull and you expose the brain and you cut through that dura, the lining of, of the brain. Yes, right. And then you wake, them, you wake them up 
And then you can start cutting things out if you need to cut them out. Now, the reason that the patient needs to be awake is that, like you said before, the brain is such uncharted territory that if the surgeon's, you know, a millimetre out, they might accidentally cut into a bit that's important for moving your arm or for, for speaking. So what you can do um, is ask the patient to, you know, say bar bar black sheep repeatedly whilst you're fiddling around with their brain or get them to keep flexing their arm or their leg just to make sure that you haven't strayed into brain territory that's really important. Um, in the book, I mention uh, a particularly interesting surgery that was done on a banjo player called Eddie Adcock, and he developed this really bad hand tremor. So he had this awake brain surgery and you can actually look at it on YouTube. You can see him in the theatre. His brain's being operated on, and Eddie's sitting there strumming on his banjo just to make sure that his fine motor control was still intact. And the surgeon's fiddling around saying, Eddie, give it another strum. Diddle, diddle, diddle. Yep, no, it's still good. We're not going anywhere dangerous. And uh, the surgery was a success. Fantastic story and a really fascinating book. Um, I thoroughly recommend it. It's called What's Wrong With You? An Insider's Guide to Your Insides. Great to chat to you, Sarah. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Virginia. Dr. Sarah Holper.